But as we started, we, we mentioned a few things about the book of Mark. Because it's not just a, you know, what few verses we'll read tonight. But the context of the book is that Jesus is being shown as the servant. He's the suffering servant. He came to give, give his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many. Um, and he poured it out as he walked on this earth. He didn't just come here and say, hey, serve me. But he came here and he served us. So that's kind of the ironic twist of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords taking on a body of flesh as we have and then desiring to serve us in order to show the love that the Father has lavished upon us. He didn't just say, I love you, but he came down and he showed that by his very actions. So as we look at that, we need to consider that as we read tonight's passage because he's continuing on in this process of reaching out and teaching. And as he does that, God brings these multitudes to him that he gets to speak into their lives. And as we looked at last week, we kind of studied kind of the end of the section where Jesus is showing his disciples, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you must be the humblest. If you want to be the greatest, you must be the servant of all. And Jesus didn't just do that by saying it, but he showed that with his very life. And so in the same way, he taught that And as he taught that, there were many people that opposed who he was. They didn't believe he was the Savior. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. But in the meantime, uh, he's left Mount Hermon where he was transfigured, and he came down off the mountain, and as he walked the 50 to 60 miles to Capernaum, he got there, and he had to deal with this question his his disciples had. You know, who is the greatest? Who do you think is going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? he addressed that. He says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you've got to be the servant of all. And then you, he also said, you've got to have childlike faith. And I think God's calling to us to a childlike faith, to a trust. Just like children trust their parents to provide what they need, so should we trust God to provide what we need. And, and in the same way, he calls us to be humble. And I love what one guy wrote today. I was reading online. He was quoting from uh, the gospel. And he said, Jesus told us, to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. He wants us to have childlike faith with adult minds. We can reason through what he's taught us. And so today, as he's leaving the area on the north of the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum, he, uh, it says in verse 1 of chapter 10, it says, Then he arose from there, which he was arising from Capernaum, and heading south. And he came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. So he's coming from the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and he's heading south. And as he does that, he heads south to the region of Judea. And if you know anything about Israel, in the region of Judea is where the heart of Israel is. Jerusalem, that's where the Temple Mount was. That's where they would all travel when the temple was in full service, and they would go and worship during the feast. That's when they would go and make their sacrifices to the Lord. So... He's heading south, and if you really think about it, in the long term of this book, he's not just heading south, but he's heading to his crucifixion. So he's getting ready to lay down his life for the sheep. So as he's making that journey, he has many opportunities still to teach the words of life, to teach his Father's will. It says there at the end of chapter, excuse me, verse 1 there, it says, And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed... He taught them again. So every time people show up, he was speaking into their lives. He wasn't just kind of hanging out on the sidelines. He was taking anybody that would come in and he was teaching them the very word of God. And so verse 2 says, 
The Pharisees came and they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. So as Jesus is teaching the multitudes, yet again, we've seen this many times as we've journeyed through the book of Mark, these multitudes gather to him and the Pharisees, who always want to stir the pot, they show up and they start trying to draw divisions in the crowd. Not good divisions, but bad divisions. And they ask this very pointed question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? No matter what the crowd, excuse me, no matter what crowd this issue gets brought up in, I guarantee it's a controversial issue. Why is it a controversial issue? Because I guarantee every person you know, it's like cancer. Every person you know has been touched by cancer. And in the same way, the family unit, I don't know anybody I'm trying to think about, I don't think I know anybody that hasn't been touched by divorce in one way or another. So it's a very touchy topic. It's a sensitive topic, and it should be, because it it involves something that's very uh, intimate and was supposed to be permanent originally. So when when it's broken, there's just this, this hurt, this pain that people go through. And so these guys are bringing this up. They're not trying to figure out whether or not Jesus agrees they're, they're, they're not trying to figure out what he, what he believes on it. They already know what he's going to say because his disciple, John the Baptist, already made a very clever distinction on that. But I have a feeling that on any given Sunday as we're sitting here minding our own business and having a Bible study, if someone were to come in and say, hey, what do you, got, what do you think about divorce? And then they looked at me for the answer, you guys would all be going, I wonder what he's going to say. You know, because it is such a controversial topic. And in today's day and age, it's not just what do you think about divorce, but what do you think about, you know, what do you think about homosexuality and what do you think about some of these abortion or any of those things? If they'd come in and ask me that, it would be, it'd be putting me on the spot, but I better have a good answer. You know, because God does have a distinction between what he allows, what he likes and what he doesn't like. And so before we get on that topic, I want to first off say before I deal with this issue that um, I realize it's a sensitive issue, and, uh, but I want to make this distinction. I heard, I heard my pastor say this one time, and I think it's a good disclaimer before we start. He said, God hates divorce, but it's also true that God does not hate divorced people. You know? So I, I thought that was pretty comforting. I myself have never been through it, but I know many people that have. So before we get on that topic, I need you to notice why the Pharisees asked this question. It was because they were, according to the end of verse 2, if you look there, they were testing Jesus. They were testing him. That's why they asked. Not because they were trying to learn anything, but because they were trying to test Jesus to see what he would say. They were not bringing this up so they could figure it out. You see, the Pharisees would always quote rabbis and other Pharisees as if they were the final authority on what God would have to say about certain things. So the problem is that the Word of God Himself is the final authority. That's what we believe as Christians. And if you don't, maybe you should, that's what we should believe. God said, I am, I am always the same, I never change. Uh, in First Peter it says, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will remain forever. And so if that's the case, and we can also look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. It says, all scripture, and I think we got to, yeah, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, if you look up there, that word there, inspiration of God, in the original context, the literal translation is that it's God breathed. 
It's something that God breathed. It came from his mouth. And so it's given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable. It's useful for doctrine. Doctrine is just a fancy word for correct teaching. So all scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for good teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's why we're here tonight. That the man of God or woman may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the work of the church. We're supposed to teach the word of God to equip believers to live a life that's pleasing to him. And so as we do that, what we'll find out is what we're about to find out is that the Pharisees do not hold to that truth. They were supposed to be the religious elite of that day, and they did not hold to the fact that God's word was God inspired. And so they would have these little arguments about what they thought it meant, and they had different camps. But Jesus, knowing this, he answers their question by pointing them to the scripture for their answer. You ask Jesus a question, he's going to give you a scriptural answer. And as a side note, if you're ever praying about something and you're trying to get God's, uh, you want to know what God's viewpoint is on it, he can give it to you. But let me also tell you that if you feel like he's given you an answer and it doesn't line up with what scripture teaches, realize that's not God. God will not contradict himself. And that's an important distinction we must make. So verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? He points them, see, he points them back to what they claimed to know. They were supposed to know the law inside and out. That was their boast. That's what they would boast about. So verse 4 says, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Now, were, were they right? And the answer is yes. He did permit a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce. So first of all, we need to go to that scripture, right? Because scripture is the best commentary on scripture. We need to go to that scripture they're referring to, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I will have the first verse up there. You're welcome to turn there. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Is Numbers last? Okay. No, it's Numbers and then Deuteronomy. You were checking me. She was testing me there. You're right. So Numbers and then Deuteronomy. So really, it's the second telling of the law. But he emphasizes there in the first verse of Deuteronomy 24, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Now, I'm stopping there because the rest of it is kind of, it keeps going, but my main point is, is that they would have an argument about what it means to find some uncleanness in their wives. Now, if this table was turned and the wives had that position to give the certificate of divorce, then you can imagine that they'd be a little bit more sensitive about the issue. But there were two camps that would argue about this. There would be just like we have nowadays, the conservatives and the liberals. And they would, there was, there was liberal uh, rabbis, we're not talking about politically, we're talking about scriptural interpretation. So you'd have the liberal theologian or the liberal uh, rabbi and the liberal uh, or the conservative rabbi. And they would argue about what the word uncleanness te technically meant. And so in that day, there were two main schools of thought. We're going to go over that because the context of that matters quite a bit. There were two main schools of thought. So the conservative, or the, he was a rabbi named Shimei, 
He said that uncleanness meant some sort of sexual uncleanness. As if a husband, excuse me, where did I, I lost my place. Perhaps the woman was supposed to be a virgin and on their wedding night, he found that she had not in fact been chaste before marriage. So in that case, they looked at it and we still look at it that way, is that if she had not been chaste or not been before she got married, because according to the Bible, adultery is any sexual uh, relationship outside of marriage, so it can happen before marriage. Um, but what he said is that if they found that kind of uncleanness in their wife, that's what the passage was talking about. Well, the liberal side of things, the rabbi Hillel said, uncleanness could mean a lot of things. And you guys are going to like this. Don't throw anything. This is not my thoughts. This is what they believe. Uncleanness can mean a lot of things. If a wife cooks a meal and overseasons it, and a husband does not like it, this is uncleanness. I'm not kidding. This is really what they looked at it as. Uh, if a wife speaks to another man in public, that's uncleanness. Um, or if she was a brawling woman, if she was a fighter, that would be uncleanness. Uh, if she speaks disrespectfully of her parent, of his parents, then that would be uncleanness. So you name it, and they would use it as uncleanness. Now, of course, this would work in their favor because basically they'd be like, I can use any reason in the world. Anybody's going to believe me. I can get a divorce and I'm clean, right? No. Just because some rabbi comes along and says it, it contradicts scripture, so that doesn't work. But that's what they believed at that time. Now get this. Here's one step further. At one point, there was even a guy by the name of Rabbi Akiba who had interpreted uncleanness as if a husband finds another woman that he thinks is more beautiful or attractive than his wife, then he's found an uncleanness in his wife. Now that's a bunch of crap, if you don't mind me saying so. It's not how it works. Uh, and we'll get to that point. So this is what kind of silliness that Jesus is dealing with in the context of this passage. It's important to know that. So verse 5, Jesus answered and he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. In other words, meaning that Moses had written this teaching in order to make a concession for divorce because he knew the hearts of men and that they were hard. He made a concession in the law because of man's weakness, not because of his strength or because he thought, you know, he made a concession because, uh, not so that they would get a divorce necessarily, but so that in the case that the marriage failed for some reason that there would be order to how it would be handled. But then he goes on to explain God's intention for marriage by taking them back to the beginning, specifically the book of beginnings, which is what Genesis means, beginning. So in Genesis, because God himself instituted the principle of marriage before the Mosaic law. So Jesus stops and he says, okay, what did Moses say? And now he starts to quote what God said in the beginning in Genesis chapter one. So if you want to know how anything is supposed to work, Ask the designer, the person that came up with it, not the person that's using it. Just because somebody buys a car and drives it every day does not know that they know does not mean that they know what its original design was for. And so verse six says, From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is quoting, sorry, I said Genesis 1. He's quoting Genesis 2 here. And he's explaining by scripture from the beginning what God's original intention was for marriage. You can never understand God's view of divorce until you first understand what his view is of marriage. People get all uptight and they put up all kinds of walls about you know, what marriage should be or shouldn't be. And it goes to vote in Congress. And I'm not going to get on a soapbox because you probably know where my stance is on it. But the reality is, is they want to keep God out of that. But the reality is, is he came up with it. It'd be one thing if they came up with marriage and said, hey, we can do anything we want with it. But because God designed it and he made it for a specific purpose and for a specific way that it would work, he's the one to best be the authority on it. So to try and get married without God involved is a complete disaster waiting to happen. It'd be like trying to work on your car without a manual and never seeing a car before you wouldn't be able to figure anything out. So uh, so he quotes from the scripture, but notice the conclusion that Jesus makes from the scripture that he quotes from Genesis. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So this gives us a little insight into what God's original intentions were for marriage. Number one, it was to be intimate. Notice the words that he uses there, one flesh. What God joined together, let not man separate. He says there, he says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And it's also to be permanent. So it's supposed to be, number one, intimate. Number two, permanent. So permanent. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder, or let no man separate. Asunder is what they said in King James, I think. So leave his father and mother to cleave or to join. The idea is that they're glued together permanently. And when a husband and a wife become one flesh, God joins them together. He's the one that puts them together. He glues them together in his way, making them inseparable. Inseparable. There you go. What happens when you decide what you want to... Say, say you want to do a little sci, uh, craft project with your kids or, or at home, and you, you're like, you know what? This piece of paper is no longer long enough. I'm going to make a, long, a bigger piece of paper. So you take those two sheets of paper, they're both individual, and then you glue them together. Now they make basically one piece of paper. Now you know that they started as two pieces of paper. But what happens is that many people wake up the next morning and they go, you know what? I decided I don't want these two pieces of paper to be together anymore. Well, the reality is, is that yes, you can separate these two pieces of paper. But when you've already glued them together, when you separate them, what happens? Do they come apart? Yes, they do come apart. But they will never, ever be the same piece of paper again. Those two pieces that were glued together, each side loses a piece in the mix. And so when you separate them, yes, they're, they're separate, but they're changed forever. They're scarred. There's wounds there's time for healing that's needed. So I guess my point is, is that God meant it to be permanent because of the result of trying to separate it. <clears throat> but what I want to point out about this passage is that the Pharisees didn't ask this question so they could hear Jesus' answer. I already said that, but we want to get back to the point of the passage because it's important to talk about what he taught 
But it's also important to be in the context so we can get to his point, to Jesus' point. But they were testing him to see how he would answer. If you remember with me, there was another man who had this issue cross his path. And he made a very strong stance on it. I alluded to it earlier. John the Baptist was around at the time that Herod, King Herod, wanted to marry his brother's wife. Now we studied this back in the beginning of Mark. And John the Baptist knew Herod. They were friends, kind of quasi And uh, Herod decided that he would want to take his brother and marry his brother's wife. Herod saw his brother's wife, saw that she was pretty, and said, you know what? I'm going to marry her. And, And he did that. And John the Baptist, being a very fiery preacher that he was, he said, that's adultery. That's sin. You can't do that. And John the Baptist got thrown in prison. Herod threw him in prison because he liked John the Baptist. See, what he really should have done, according to the, the kings of that day, is have John the Baptist put to death right away for bad-mouthing him. But he didn't because he liked John the Baptist. You see, Herod was a religious man. He was enamored with Jewish culture. He considered himself a Jew. And so he was a Jew, but he was also a king. He was a worldly king. And so he had these lusts of the flesh, and so he took his brother's wife and married her. But at the same time, he wanted to remain religious. Well, the problem with that is that if you're going to call yourself one of God's people, then God's people are going to hold you accountable to that. And so John the Baptist calls him out on the carpet. He says, that's sin. Well, he threw him in prison. So he's been dealt with by Herod. But Herod's wife took it a little personally. She had a little vendetta for John the Baptist. And so what she did is when she got aggravated enough, she wanted John the Baptist dead. So in an opportune time, to make a long story short, when she had the opportunity and her daughter had danced, and then it's a long story, but basically Herod was drunk and he promised to his daughter-in-law or daughter, however that works, he said, I will give you up to half the kingdom for how well you've danced for me. And so she goes back to her mom, Herodias, and says, what shall I ask for? He's offered me up to half the kingdom. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So John the Baptist has made this big distinction. He says, no, it's marriage, and and it stays together. That's how God designed it. And so he ends up getting killed because he makes that stance. That's what happens sometimes. But the reality is, is the Pharisees, knowing this, and knowing that Jesus has just come back into the region of Judea, of which Herod is the ruler, they're like, you know what? We can call him out in public. And if somebody hears it that knows Herod, He'll tell Herod, and perhaps they'll put Jesus to death. See, they wanted to get rid of Jesus, and they thought, you know what, if we can do that without killing him ourselves, so be it. So this is another reason they perhaps brought that up. Verse 10. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It's like, wow, that's pretty heavy. So Jesus here is just being a little bit more specific with his disciples than he was in the crowd concerning the passage that we read in Deuteronomy 24. He's explaining that Deuteronomy 24 is not discussing what constitutes cleanness and uncleanness like they made it, as the teachers of that day were arguing about. This was a rule, he's explaining, this was a rule to protect the woman from being unlawfully given a certificate of divorce. So Jesus says there plainly, 
Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. More specifically, what he's saying is whoever divorces his wife unlawfully and then marries another woman, he is committing adultery. So here's the deal. There's only one reason that the Bible allows a Christian to get divorced, and that is adultery, sexual immorality. The other reason is if an unbelieving spouse wants to depart from the marriage, then that person is free to leave. You go, wait a minute, why? Well, because they're not Christians. They don't need biblical grounds for divorce. They don't believe in the God of divorce and so, or of, of marriage. So they don't need biblical grounds to leave. Now, at the same time, they're still accountable to God on the day of judgment for that sin that they've committed. So the reality is, is they don't get away fancy free with it just because they're not a Christian. But at the same time, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7 that if an unbelieving spouse, say you got two spouses and they're unbelievers and one gets saved, the other one goes, I'm out of here, you're a Jesus freak. Okay, let them depart, but don't divorce them because you're saved and they're not. So, and if you guys want to look a little bit more into that, I won't get into it tonight. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul deals with it more specifically to the Corinthian church. But more than the reasons for or against divorce according to God's word, I want to encourage you, if you have been divorced if, or if you are going through one, God calls us to live as we are called. We're not condemned. You cannot undo the past, but you can live now as you are called. God loves you not because you have always been perfect or because everything in your life is great, uh, but because he's good and he's merciful. I love when Jesus explains to the Pharisees earlier in Mark that he didn't come for the righteous but to save sinners. He came for those that were, were caught up in sin, and he came for those that were brokenhearted. And I know many who have been divorced, and if it had not been for that trial in their life, one very good close buddy of mine wouldn't even be a believer in Jesus had he not gone through a divorce. And so uh, I won't argue about whether or not it was God's will. I know it was for his good. And so uh, God uses it. Um, so if you have been divorced, realize that it isn't an unforgivable sin. The only unforgivable sin is not repenting and trusting in the one who can forgive sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness or simply placing our trust in Jesus. So maybe you're on the other side and your spouse left you. I know that happens and I can't explain it. And, uh, and it makes me angry, frankly. But Jesus knows what you've been through and his desire is not to leave you alone by yourself but in that brokenness to comfort you and grow you and be there for you as you heal. He's close to those and he hears those who are broken of a broken heart and a contrite or a lowly spirit. He desires to be the one to lift you back up. So I, I guess I just commend you and I encourage you, live as you are now and let him give you beauty for ashes because he always does. But that being said, what I would like you to see in today's passage is how Jesus dealt with his, this opposition with his enemies from those who were against his cause. He was teaching the lessons of God's kingdom and scoffers came in to destroy what he was doing and Jesus didn't get upset. He didn't get mad at them, but instead he answered their question using not his intellect, uh, not his arguing skills, but he pointed them back to the authority of God's holy scriptures and he answered their question about something that God designed in the first place. He didn't try to convince them based on just getting angry or loud, 
But he calmly and peacefully responded to them with the words of truth that are in the Bible. Let me ask you, when people ask you why you believe something, do you argue? Do you feel doubt? Do you shrink back? Or do you take them to Scripture? There are many people with hang-ups and doubts about the Christian faith. They don't believe who Jesus is. They've been spending too much time watching History Channel. You know, when they do some of those Gnostic kind of things and they try to expose the unknown Gospels and all those things. There are many people out there with doubts and they'll always be there. I was a person who always felt like I had to check my brain at the door when I went to church. It was only six years ago that I wouldn't darken the doors of a church because I, I thought, you know, okay, trust, believe, obey, I understand all those things, but, but what about my daily life situations? And then I was at work one day, and I walked down the hall, and there was a guy, and I asked him some questions. And he invited me to church, and I very calmly reasoned with him. I was like, I, I understand all that, but it doesn't ever seem to be relevant to my life. And so he goes, well, what are you trying to deal with? What are you trying to find answers on? And so I told him. Do you know what he did with me that was monumental? He didn't have a quick fix. You know, he, he said, I don't know. But let me get back to you tomorrow, because I know it's got to be in God's word. So a couple days later, I go into his office, and I said, well, did you come up with any answers? And I wasn't like a scoffer. I wasn't, you know, trying to prove him wrong. I was just like, did you come up with any answers? And he opened up his Bible, and he said, here's the answer. And I read it, and for the first time, I realized how intricately God wants to be involved in my life and answer my questions and be there for me in the midst of my doubts and my struggles God's not too weak that he can't reach us in the middle of our problems, and he's not too lame that he can't answer our questions. He wants to answer our questions. He just wants us to seek him for the answers. And what I didn't know when I approached my coworkers that I was seeking the Lord it was just through one of his followers. And when I found the answer, it changed my life completely. It's why I'm standing here today, or sitting. It's, it's why I believe so strongly in the teaching of God's word because Peter writes that all things that pertain to life and godliness are found in the Word of God, in Him, in Jesus Christ. And so, I also wanted to point out the fact that he was not upset at all when he answered these guys that were vehemently against him. He knew that they wanted to murder him, have him put down, as it were. So it made me think about the peace that he had, and it made me think about the verse that God keeps impressing upon my wife and I's heart as we get ready to move down here and as we've got a little girl and as we go through just daily struggles. And the Lord keeps showing us that verse in Isaiah 26, verse 3, that's very impactful. It says, it says God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed or stayed or resting on him because he trusts him. When we trust God and we take our mind and we decide it's not a heart thing. It is a heart thing. God gives us a new heart. We have to daily make decision to trust him. And when we say, Lord, this situation doesn't make any sense and I'm really scared right now, but I know that your word says this, so I'm deciding with my brain to trust you. What happens is that the rest is up to him because when we trust him, we don't have to hold ourselves up. We don't have to make the situation work. He will do it. So Jesus exemplified perfect peace during this discussion. And peace in this world is an attractive quality to many people that are looking for peace. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify our God in heaven. So 